Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, hello again, everyone. If you just got here, if you uh, are tuning in online, uh, welcome. My name is Tyler, and I am the Director of Music and Communication here at True North Church, and I am thankful for the opportunity to preach to you today. I've been uh, pouring over the scriptures, and I, uh, I'm just excited about what God's going to do through our text today. Thank you for the opportunity to teach, to preach. It means a lot, I mean, to me to have your trust today, but my hope, not to get overly preachy right before we even start, uh, but that your hope, that your trust is not in me, it's not in any preacher to, uh, to grow you towards the Lord, to bring you where you need to be, but that your full faith and your full trust today would be put in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. So let's look to him. Let's look to Jesus in the book of Luke. So if you haven't already turned there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Head that way. Uh, Ballard just read that aloud for us. Thank you so much. It's a quick reminder for us today that we are in the final Sunday before Christmas Day, and that makes today our final sermon in this Advent series. We've been in the book of Luke. We've been looking at the uh, songs of Christmas sang by different people. We started with the Magnificat or the, uh, the song of Mary, Mary's song. From there, the next week, we talked about the song that uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, sang and, and prophesied over his own son and Jesus both. Then last week, uh, Joshua preached the multitude of angels singing with the shepherds and, and praising God over them uh, earlier in the book of Luke chapter 2. And so this week, we're going to continue along in Luke chapter 2 to the final song of Christmas. You should see behind me the word Advent on the screen. We've been defining Advent as a season of remembering and anticipating Jesus. And I just stole this slide right from Josh's sermon, because why fix a thing that's not broke? A helpful way to remember that is that we remember that Jesus came, and we anticipate that Jesus will come again. So without further preamble, let's just get into our text today. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Luke 2, 22. And it says this, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we've opened up our passage today. Uh, we've already seen kind of a couple things happening in pretty rapid succession. These are very important rites and rituals in the culture and law of God's people. So Jesus and his family, having already gone through the ceremony of circumcision at about eight days old, the next ceremony to take place for them was the purification. Now Leviticus chapter 12, it details all of this, but I'll give you the abbreviated version. So when an Israelite woman gives birth to a male child, she is considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. And then on the eighth day, the child is circumcised. After that, the mother is considered ceremonially unclean for another 33 days. The Bible says uh, back in Leviticus that she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. Uh, and if you're curious, the, uh, for a female child, the time frame is doubled for whatever reason. So I'm sorry, it makes sense, I think. Uh, during this time, the mother can't touch anything holy. 
She can't even come into the sanctuary uh, until she pays for her purification. So then she offers payment in the form of two doves or pigeons, and that is if she can't afford a lamb. One is for a burnt offering, and the other as a sin offering. These ceremonies both are outward expressions of something internal. They are signs of the covenants that God has with his people, an outward expression of the inward condition of the heart, namely our need for cleansing and the inability to have it without somebody else paying for it. The great irony, of course, in all of this is that the mother of the Messiah himself has been unable to worship in the temple for 40 whole days because of the blood of her childbirth. So to set the scene, she, she walks into the temple today with a, a bag of birds, I guess. I'm not exactly sure. A Nike box with holes cut in the cardboard? Probably not. Uh, she walks in with these birds. She's going to pay for her purification and cleansing, which the priest then accepts because that's what the law dictates. She now has paid for her cleansing with Pigeons in one hand, all while carrying the blood sacrifice for the entire of creation in the crook of her other arm. Like childbirth, something that the law says makes you unclean, is the path in which the cleansing of every tribe and tongue and nation is going to take place. I got to imagine the priest probably had no idea that he, he most likely witnessed the greatest short change in all of history. If, it feels a little bit like the, the image I got was like being stuck in, a, in line at a gas station behind Jeff Bezos, and he turns to you and asks if he could break a 20 so he could buy a pack of gum. It's like, dude, my guy, you can pay for everything I've ever needed forever. Everything anybody I've ever known will ever need infinity times over. Like, that's the level of disparity between. I'm trying to say, the birds feel a little lacking to me, okay? They're pigeons. They're rat birds. Like, God's not doing this. Obviously, he's not doing this to be ironic, okay? We know that. In this, he's showing us that he's been working on the plan to cleanse us all from sin, and he's been working on it a very, very long time. If we look back at our passage uh, in chapter 2, uh, your Bible may have it in parenthesis. It says that every, ma every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Uh, if you've been attending True North for a while... Um, you would know that we've been in the book of Exodus. We've been making our way through that book. It's the account of God delivering his people from slavery and honoring the covenant that he cut with them. If we look back at Exodus chapter 13, I'll read for you a little snippet. This is Exodus 13. We would see this passage here. And the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. If we kept reading, we would see that Moses is addressing his people, God's people, on the very day that Pharaoh released them from slavery in Egypt. Moses is calling on God's people to remember the Lord's faithfulness. So... Right at the beginning of chapter 13, what we just read, that moment is found directly between the ten plagues on Egypt and the exodus of Israel. And the event that directly precedes this, if you remember it, is the Passover in which God sent the angel of death to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And God did not do this 
on accident. God finishes what he starts. While our own lives may feel a little bit like a, uh, at least for me, like a, a, a haphazard collection of just loose threads, but God really, he, he's a master craftsman. He's the Lord of time and space itself. He's weaving everything according to his will. He's in charge, and that's a good thing for us. To love the Lord our God fully, anything less than giving the first of what we have, I mean, it's just not enough. Okay, that's not a statement of condemnation. I'm not prescribing that you have to pay a 10% tithe, like pre-tax, whatever. That's not, I don't mean that. I mean that if Yahweh really is to be first in our lives, then we should make him first, first. And God knows this. And that's why he passes down the law to his people in this way in Exodus 13. The reason he does it in that order is because it is a merciful teaching for us that the Lord calls out the firstborn, that he calls out the first fruits to himself. But the hope for you and I is that God doesn't ask anything of us that he hasn't already supplied. Look with me to the book of Colossians chapter 1. In that book, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me because we're going to get back to the book of Luke. Uh, But in Colossians 1, Paul says this, starting in verse 15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. God is not sitting and guarding the entrance to heaven from anybody that didn't tithe. That's not what he's doing. God already paid for your and my cleansing with his firstborn, his very image, and we are compelled by that great love. That great sacrificial cleansing, we are compelled by that love to give the first affections of our hearts to him. Whatever the Lord has called you to do, whatever he's asked of you, whatever he's putting you through in this moment, understand that he's already given you the grace and the mercy and the power that you need to trust him to see it through. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I did write that in, but I really couldn't help myself. Somebody should write that down. We should sing that sometime. What I hope that we're kind of asking ourselves, that a really good question I think, I hope, is how in the world do we put this kind of trust in our day-to-day walk? Like, how do we put our trust in God that way? I think it's a good question. How does this work itself out practically? Well, God doesn't give us a great example, and he's going to do it on purpose, of course. So let's look back to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 2 still, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. God's going to show us what it looks like to trust him daily, to walk in him, to know that he's going to see it through because he is good and right and perfect. Verse 25 says, 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon, as far as I'm concerned, uh, has just the greatest biography of all time. Like if half as much could be said about any of us, like we would know at the end of our life, our life was not wasted at all. He was righteous, he was devout, he was waiting on the consolation of Israel, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we just don't need to know anything else about him. It's very concise. I think his greatest character trait is that he trusts in the Lord. Like, that's the thing everything else kind of flows from. So we see, uh, if we read First John today, the first chapter says that righteousness isn't something that you and I can create. It's not something that you, you and I can attain. Righteousness is something that is uh, imparted from God. So, if it says he is righteous, it really doesn't matter what we say of him now. It doesn't matter what we think of him now because we know what God thinks of him. The word righteous in this passage, uh, in the original uh, Greek, it's used in other parts of the New Testament, um, including in the book of Mark, it's used to describe uh, Joseph, Jesus' father. And these are men, the way it's used is they are men from whom acts of righteousness naturally flow from as a result of a heart captured by the Lord. So let me, I'll just read that again because it's a complex sentence. Righteousness, the way it's used in this passage, is used to describe a man from whom acts of righteousness naturally flow from as the result of a heart that is captured by the Lord. So he's righteous. He is devout. And notice that the scriptures, it doesn't say that he's religious. He could have been religious from birth, and he wouldn't be necessarily one step closer to God than when he began. Like the Pharisees are going to outdo themselves to prove that point over and over later in scripture. Now the word devout, this is found in other passages to describe men who, uh, who fear the Lord and they continually walk in his ways. They show a depth of character that doesn't lean on their understanding of doctrine so much as just loving what God loves. Like when, it's, when the word devout is used a lot of the times in the New Testament, these are just uh, guys that are doing their best, um, that are continually doing the work because they know it needs to be done because they know that God loves the work. Simeon is a man whose actions align with God's heart because they flow from a heart that is overflowing with trust in the Lord. Then it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So we know that he understands something is coming. Something's coming from the Lord, and he know, we know that he has the faith that's required to wait on God to see it out. He knows this will happen because God said it would happen. And God always finishes what he starts also, we know here that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I feel a little bit like this is a given at this point. Like, I just don't think Simeon could be the man that he's described as being without, uh, without the Holy Spirit leading him and guiding him and pointing him towards what God wants. I, I see him as like a tightly coiled spring, okay? He's just waiting for one little nudge from the Holy Spirit, and he's just going to fly off in whatever direction. That's a spring. That's how springs work. He's a rare one. In fact, the, uh, in the original language, the passage begins with the word uh, behold, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an exclamation. Behold! 
It's like a uh, circus crier, okay, like unveiling his main attraction. Behold, a righteous man who has found favor with the Lord. Have you ever seen such a marvelous thing? You've seen in movies, right? Circus criers, that's the thing. When's the last time we actually heard a circus crier? I'm not saying it's the best impression I've got, but I'm saying you don't know because you haven't been there. Oh, that was the dumbest thing I wrote today, I think. (laughs) Just enjoy, just enjoy it. We see that the Holy Spirit told him that he wouldn't die. He wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. Certainly that feels like it's a big deal, right? It probably feels a little bit like I glossed over that. We will get to that, and I want you to just keep that thought in your heads for a moment. And then look at the phrase from verse 25, that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So he wouldn't die until he saw Jesus. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I want to keep reading because I think some context is going to be really helpful for us today. Let's thread these verses together. Verse 27 says this. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And that was our final song. That was the last song we're going to look at in Advent. So as Simeon entered the temple today, he was being led by the Holy Spirit He laid his eyes on a 40-day-old baby, and he just grabbed him, which I guess is just a thing that people used to do. They just grabbed other people's kids. I don't like that, but this is a good thing, I guess. So he grabs the baby. He just begins to, 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 to bless God because he knew at that moment that God finishes what he starts. So what is it that God started? Well, we know at some point the Holy Spirit had spoken into Simeon's life and had assured him that he would not die until he saw Jesus. This sounded really cool to me at first. Like, no matter what, you couldn't die. You could get away with anything until you saw Jesus. I would abuse that. I'm glad I'm not Simeon. But why was the Lord keeping him? What was he waiting for? So verse 25 says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think it's easy with the, the lights, the Christmas trees, the poinsettias, the jolly music. I think it's probably really easy for us to forget how uh, bad it was in Israel at this point in time. God's people, they were poor. They were struggling. The only reason that Mary brought in two birds was because she couldn't afford the land that was required by the sacrifice, and God gave an out to people that couldn't afford one. Israel was under foreign occupation at this time, and there had been no prophet to to speak with God's voice for over 400 years. It's been complete radio silence from God for 400 years. Faithful service to the Lord at this time, it was at an all-time low, and unfortunately, that means what replaced it was just this outward religious pomp. The truly faithful, they were spread thin, they were a remnant of what they used to be. Death would be a comfort to anyone that was forced to watch this vicious spiral 
continue to just spiral out of control. To watch his own people crumble away into hopelessness, like that's a bad thing to me. But the hope that God offers Simeon this day is the same hope that God offers you and I today. So when Simeon begins his prophetic song over Jesus, he knows that God is finishing what he started. He knows that the salvation of Israel is at hand and in his hands. He doesn't refer to it as some future down-the-line event either. He knows that the word of God is going to be fulfilled, that God's consolation to the broken remnant of Israel is here. He's experiencing the lyrics of the song. This is a song we're going to sing at the end of the service today. He's experiencing the lyrics of the song, O Holy Night, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Simeon's like a great watchman. He's standing on the walls watching for this good news. He's waiting for something that's been promised for generations. I would even argue that all of the songs that we've been looking at uh, that were sung by men uh, have been the great watchman. Let's look to the Old Testament for a moment. Let's look to Isaiah chapter 52. It'll be on the screens for you. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 7, says this. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Ooh, excuse me. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I love the language here. Like the good news is so good, in fact, that the very feet of the person that brings it, who's stepping through the desert and the muck and the mire and walking over mountains, like even their feet are a beautiful thing because they're helping bring the good news. And just the idea that God bears his holy arm, I love that. Like God just rolls up his sleeve and he just flexes, and the whole world sees the salvation and the hope of Israel. And they're coming hope. Like God, it's just a, he's just a mighty, powerful God. I love that. Simeon's song, it just serves to magnify that power to us. Let's pick up in Luke 2 again. We're going to start in verse 33, and this is going to be where we end our, uh, our time today. So what's the good news? What is Israel's consolation? Verse 33 says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I think it's interesting that, uh, that it says Mary and Joseph marveled at what was said about Jesus. I feel a little bit like we've heard this already like three or four times. Uh, like Joshua preached last week, uh, the shepherds, they came to Mary and Joseph and told them all that the angels had sang over them and prophesied and foretold. I, this is just a minor point, but I really feel like it's worth saying that it really doesn't matter 
what's going on, reminding ourselves about what God has already done, reminding others about that, it's never going to be a waste of your time. So we can move on from there. Mary and Joseph were uh, marveling about what was said. Uh, Things really start to kind of change gears here. In verse 34, Simeon expands into some new territory for all of us. He's going to expand into what the salvation and consolation of Israel will actually really entail. So after his song of praise, we saw that he starts addressing Mary and Joseph. He gives them some really deep and some heavy prophetic language. And we're going to break these phrases down. He says that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of, of many in Israel. Right? Simeon knows it's not all roses going forward. God's pruning some hedges here. He's going to pave the way for his glory this way. It's not enough that God would simply make things the way they are but better. No, God's tearing down some walls. He's putting up a foundation. He's going to make things new. After that, it says, it goes on to say, and for a sign that is opposed, more simply, it's just saying that Jesus is appointed to be a sign that will be opposed. I think that's pretty obvious the further we get into Scripture. People are not ready to hear what Jesus has to say. They kill him for it. After that, uh, your Bible may have it in parenthesis. It says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also to Mary, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This process is not going to be painless. Jesus is going to raise many high, and he's going to bring many low. Like he says later he's going to turn father against son. He's going to turn mother against daughter. But Mary's pain, that's going to be a special kind of pain. Think about it. Nobody else in the history of creation ever held and nurtured the Lord of all creation except for her. Like there's not a mother in here, I know there's not, that wouldn't grieve to know that their son was hurt or if he was hungry or if he was sad. And think about it, Mary just gave birth to the man of sorrows. Imagine the fear, the fear that she must have felt warring against that wonder and that marvel that she just said she was experiencing. Imagine the fear when she just heard that the pain she's going to endure will be like a sword through her soul. Dwell there for just a moment. A sword through your soul. That pain has, it has to be real to us. I know in Western society, we really don't confront pain well, especially not like emotional or mental or spiritual pain. We don't really have categories for that in normal day-to-day conversation. It's pretty taboo. But if we, if we can't let those things pierce the veil of our enlightened sensibilities, we're not going to be able to truly taste the thrill of hope that's on offer for us today. So what's changed What's changed in the last 400 years in Israel? Like, what makes the day that Simeon sees Jesus, what makes that day different from all the days before it? If you take one sentence from today, it's this, that Jesus is here. That's what's different. That's what is new. God is finishing what he started. He's finishing what he started when man first decided that they knew better than God. And Simeon saw that it was as good as done because he trusts in the Lord. 
The pain that Jesus would endure, the, uh, the agony that awaited Mary, the fall of many in Israel, it says. These things are all necessary. It's not enough, again, that Jesus should just, or God should use Jesus to just make things better. God's got to make them new. The last line there, it says that the reason it must happen, all these things that have to happen, the reason they have to happen is because it's going to expose the thoughts of many hearts. Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. That's what he does. And to leave things the way that they were, we know each other, we know ourselves. If they, he would have just left things the way they were, it would have just served to cement our hearts of stone, Right? Jesus never encounters our hearts without changing them. That never happens. He could be raising us up. He could be knocking us down. But Jesus is always going to take us somewhere. This present, this Jesus that is right here, he will find any of those that are given to him by his Father. And he will change us, and he will save us, and he will cleanse us, and he will heal us. Because Jesus makes all things new. Simeon represents the old. He represents the former way of life to us. It's just weary. It's self-centered. And truly, it is hopeless. But Jesus enters the scene and he promises peace for his people. With peace, the old passes away to make a way for Jesus, just like Simeon. And there is so much hope for you and I in that. I don't, I don't really know where we're all at today. I know some of you. I don't know all of you. Maybe you're all in a super good place today. You were just excited to go home and anticipate praising Jesus with your friends and family. Like maybe today was a super kind of downer for you. I don't know. But what I'm asking is for all of us to just put ourselves in this headspace for a moment. To look back on the pain and the torment of Israel to look back at the pain and torment of our own lives without Jesus. Look back on that pain and then realize that God, that Jesus came for that pain. R.C. Sproul, he says this. He says that since God is absolutely sovereign over all, and works all things according to his purposes. This is Ephesians 1.11 he's quoting. We understand that every instance of suffering results from his calling upon us. This is true even when we do not know why we are suffering. The important thing is that he knows why we are suffering. And he is working to conform us to the image of Christ in the midst of our pain. And for that we can always be grateful. Remember that Jesus came to be the salvation and the consolation of Israel. And he did that for you, and he did that for me, and he's going to do that for anyone that would call on his name and confess their need to him. If we're going to take anything away from Simeon's song today, we need to look back and remember. Remember that hopelessness of life without Jesus. And then we get to look forward and we anticipate Jesus making all things new. As surely as Simeon knew that Jesus was here, we must know that Jesus is a living Savior. He is active in our hearts and in our lives. He's a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. 
And the word says he's our friend. Remember, Jesus came for us. Jesus is alive today. And he's going to finish what he started. Because soon and very soon, we know that Jesus is going to come again. And I hope you'll join me in just looking forward to it. Will you join me in prayer today? Lord, teach us what it means to look forward to your return. God, teach us what it means to remember, remember the pain of the past without Jesus. Even if we've been a Christian as long as we can remember. Lord, to know that you have been working in our lives for much longer than we've ever been aware of it. God, pierce our hearts. Let us not be afraid to confront pain and discomfort and sorrow. May God not to be a downer, but to just get ourselves ready to celebrate the birth of our Savior. In just a few days, we're going to celebrate that day. So God, prepare us, prepare our hearts for your advent, for your coming. Lord, we love you. We know you can change us. We know you will. We know you'll never leave us where you found us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.